This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with T.J. Kasperbauer who is a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Bioethics at the Indiana University School of Medicine. His new book, Subhuman, The Moral Psychology of Human Attitudes Towards Animals, is just out from Oxford University Press. Non-human animals are companions, research subjects, creatures we fear, creatures we eat. Why do we put other animals in the various categories that we do and treat them in the various good and bad ways that we do? These are questions about human attitudes towards other animals and the moral implications of these attitudes. They're an underexplored area of moral psychology. In Subhuman, Casper Bauer examines psychological research to defend a view about why and how we dehumanize other animals and why and how we might be able to change those attitudes in order to bring our behavior towards other animals more in line with our moral values. On his view, we apply in-group, out-group thinking to ensure our superior status as a species, and our ability to improve moral outcomes is limited by our psychology. Nevertheless, knowing what these limits are is crucial for understanding how moral behavior towards animals can be changed. Let's listen to the interview. Hello, TJ Kasperbauer. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hi, Gary. I'm looking forward to talking about subhuman, um, your examination of basically human moral psychology as it pertains to animals and the possibilities for changing it in order to improve our general behavior towards animals. Um, Before we get into the book itself, uh, I thought maybe you would tell us a bit about yourself. I mean, how you came to philosophy, um, how the book came about, and also... um, one of the interesting things that I noticed was your dedication was to the bonobos of Iowa. So, uh, so if you could say a bit about uh, about the background of the book. Yeah. So it it all actually all of those things actually started over about ten years ago uh, when I was an undergrad. I was a double major in philosophy and psychology, but was fortunate enough to be invited to work uh, in an ape cognition lab. So it was called the Great Ape Trust. Uh, it was in Des Moines, Iowa. It's since changed names, but at the time it was just getting started. It was very exciting. They were very encouraging of someone studying both philosophy and psychology. 
And my plan at the time was to be a cognitive scientist. I was, I was mainly interested in how apes and all non-humans think about the world. And I was involved in lots of studies, uh, you know, studying their linguistic abilities, their cognitive abilities, their, their, their memory. Uh, but what actually ended up interesting me was, was when I was asked to be a tour guide. So I spent about a year doing most of the tours at the Great Ape Trust. And what really surprised me was that when I would present the empirical studies, the research on, on the apes and non-human cognition, people would get sort of offended sometimes. And, and uh, you know, I, I thought it was very exciting. I wondered why they weren't just getting excited like I was, but people were surprised to hear that apes could be compared to humans in certain uh, abilities, like their linguistic abilities. Uh, and they were also sort of just disgusted by apes. And that surprised me too. I wasn't disgusted. I, didn't, I wasn't uh, feeling any negative uh, emotions about uh, seeing apes running around and neither did my coworkers. And so it was weird trying to give tours to people and trying to convince them that uh, they should be as excited about apes as I was. And instead they were, uh, they just seemed offended and insulted by certain things. Not everyone, but enough that this was surprising to me. Uh, they also asked about a lot of things like, uh, the captivity, uh, what I thought about the ethics of captivity for apes and things like zoos, as well as what I thought about bonobo conservation and, and treatment of animals in the wild. And so I started, I started shifting to ethics and less cognitive science. So around that time, I went to grad school. Uh, so this is around 2008. At that same time, uh, people might know Jonathan Haidt uh, and other psychologists were starting to think more about moral psychology. There were also a lot of philosophers like Josh Nob, uh, Edward Meshri, and Jesse Prince starting to do studies on people's attitudes towards animals. And so at the time, I thought this is what I think I want to focus on, uh, ethics and moral psychology, specifically for animals. Okay, so um, so one one of the I mean just to follow up on that um, I mean there's a lot of different directions to go in you know why the people were so well I guess eventually the the thing is why were people did they have the the responses that they that they did have at the at the Great Ape Trust right but um, so in the switch from cognitive science to ethics I mean one of the one of the themes that comes up at various places in the book. Um, is this idea that um, the the idea that looking at psychology has anything to do with ethics, or um, uh, you know that somehow this is this is a disputed combination of some sort? Um, and and again, as you said, you know, moral psychology is is somewhat of a you know a newer area, you might say. But what? In general, I mean, wh why is this combination um, so disputed, like among, at least among ethicists or within moral theory in philosophy? Yeah, and that's, that was, I guess, a puzzle for me for a long time is why it is so disputed. I think the, the main reason is that a lot of ethicists are focused on what is right. They want to find... Uh, well, not everyone would use this phrase, but they want to find moral truth. They want to find what really is right and wrong, not what people think is right, right and wrong. 
So I could do tons of studies on what people think about morality, uh, survey after survey of uh, what people say is right with respect to animals, uh, why they you know don't want to eat meat or whatever. I and mean, ethicists can still ask, well, is it is it really right? Sure, you all think that we may have one hundred percent consensus that something is right or something is wrong, but that the question still remains: like, why is it right? Why is it wrong? Mm-hmm. And there's a long tradition in philosophy, uh, especially I guess late twentieth century, early twenty first century, saying this is sort of the distinctive thing about ethics: is it doesn't matter what what we think about right and wrong under under determines what actually is right or wrong. And a, I guess a related reason when we're talking about uh, behavior change in morality, so maybe we have consensus on things now, but things change going into the future, we need some sort of guidance as we think about different moral uh, topics, not just with animals. Uh, our psychologies will change, and so we have to have some way of evaluating whether we're changing in a good way or a bad way, and you won't know that just by looking at psychology. So in the book, I, I mean, I'm trying to acknowledge that that's important, but I still think moral psychology tells us a lot about uh, moral behavior and how we think about things. Because even when we ask, you know, is it really right? Is it really wrong? We're using our psychologies to, to you know, pose those questions. And so to understand how we should treat animals, we have to start with some facts about um, how we do treat animals. And that gives us a starting point, especially if we want to push behavior change in a certain way, or, or we think attitudes to animals need to change in, in one direction rather than another, we need to have some idea of how that's going to happen. Uh, and with, without, without a more rigorous study of the empirical facts, it's hard to, to have that conversation. Right. Um, so there's, um, I mean, there's another aspect of this, which, which you don't get into, which is the whole idea of, you know, arriving at moral truths or any sorts of truths via conceptual analysis. Um, you, you don't really get into that at all, but that, that seems to be a, a related, if background issue, uh, would you think? Yeah. I mean, so I think that's, that's how most ethicists approach their job is they, they want to know that they, they employ their own moral concepts to, to arrive at some conclusion about what is right or wrong. Uh, and it's not that that's unhelpful, but a lot of times there are moral psychological assumptions embedded in those things. So they think they, they are, are just doing conceptual analysis, but usually they're drawing on observations or intuitions they have about the world without really examining uh, the basis of those things. And especially in the, the literature on animal ethics, uh, I feel like there's there's a lot of un- unexamined assumptions about the way we think about animals, where it's just assumed that, say, harm to animals is important and that everybody thinks the same way about harm. Uh, and it turns out there's been a lot of research on that that we can look at uh, instead of just doing our own sort of conceptual analysis. Okay, good. Okay, that was that was helpful. So, um, you know, one of the basic claims, I suppose, uh, overall in the book is the idea that we are our attitudes towards animals are such that we are they're they're demoted motivated by let me put it that way motivated by a, a desire or a need or something to contrast them 
with ourselves, to use them as a contrast class, uh, not just as a contrast, but also as an inferior class to us. So making ourselves superior, establishing a, a hierarchy uh, of some sort um, uh, where we are the superior species, uh, it, you know, and I, I I'm using the term superior, I suppose, in the in the moral sense, although it's multi, you know, there are a lot of different ways in which we might grade ourselves as superior. Uh, could you say a bit about that, that sort of overarching claim of the book? Yeah. I mean, so, so going back to like the, the original, I guess, thing that bothered me where I'm telling people about apes and they feel offended. There's a lot of research, not just with apes or animals, but with anybody we see as not like us or similar to us, but not exactly like us, where people feel threatened in some way. Uh, and so the, the main claim of the book is, is sort of a uh, giving a picture of in-group, out-group psychology. So animals are, are weird in that they are like us in some ways. They have, so say like dogs, have lots of the same uh, behavioral traits as us, physical traits, but at the same time, they're very different. They have, you know, fur covering their whole body. They have four legs. They don't walk bipedally, et cetera. And so we're we're automatically drawn to them to make comparisons about ourselves. A similar thing happens with humans. So when we judge people who are, who take us to be an outgroup, where people say, ah, you, you are, um, you're human like me, but say if there's a direct conflict between someone in my group and your group, I find some way I'll identify some trait to see you as less than me. And so research on what's called this dehumanization has found that on the one hand, somebody could compare themselves to another group and say, I, I really dislike you. We're, you know, you and I are fighting, so I dislike you for all these reasons. And they'll say, like, I'm, I'm a more intelligent person than you are. I'm more compassionate. I have uh, all sorts of uniquely human traits that you don't have. And as a result, you know, I'm going to treat you more negatively. And on the other hand, there are, there are cases where there is no conflict. There's no direct conflict between two human groups. But people will still do the same thing, where they find some way to treat their group or see their group as better than another. And it seems to just be sort of a, a fundamental uh, fact about our, you know, our, the way we think about our group versus another group, where we want to find some trait that makes our group better. And that's, that's a very high level summary, summary of the psychology for humans. And so the basic, I guess, view uh, uh, that I try to present in the book is that something similar is going on with animals where they're sort of an outgroup for us, all of them, uh, and we feel threatened by them. So we find some way to see ourselves as, as superior to them. Uh, what, one of the issues you're bringing up here is uh, we, we, create these in-groups and out-groups uh, through uh, dehumanization or specifically infrahumanization, which you... Yeah, the terms get tricky. Yeah, but you, you, I think you just described that infrahumanization pretty well. Um, uh, so I guess the question is, in a sense, what, what comes first? Is, is, is it that we have these attitudes 
where we make others feel, or we make ourselves in some way superior to other human groups or to animals, you know, in general. Uh, and then we treat them in various ways because they're inferior. Um, or, or do we treat them as inferior in various ways? You know, we, we kill them, right? Uh, some of them we eat. Uh, uh, and then we come up with these attitudes that justify it. Yeah, and I want to say both, but it's it's tricky to pull them apart. So the way I guess the way I try to approach it is to say, I try to give an evolutionary account of, you know, to make sense of which one of these things would have come first. Uh, and so I'll try to make this short, but if, if we, if we look in uh, different evolutionary accounts of our relationships with animals for a long time, they were mostly a threat to us. Eventually we started, you know, having closer relationships with them where they weren't direct threats, but for a long period of time, you know, either we were hunting them or they were hunting us. And there are all sorts of studies indicating that this is a fundamental biological re reaction we have to all sorts of animals is to immediately view them as threats and to, and to sort of be wary of them. As part of that, though, you know, because we have this fundamental sort of aversion, we have to find ways of coping with it. So there's research on what's known as terror management theory, which is about how, how we cope with different types of threats to our mortality. And with animals, it's interesting because we, we would have had good reason to become comfortable with them, whether they are direct threats or if they're just, uh, you know, a, a normal livestock animal that doesn't really pose a threat to us. And in fact, you know, would provide food to our evolutionary ancestors. Uh, we had all sorts of reasons to get comfortable with them and treat them as if they're not threats. So find some way to motivate ourselves to you know, bring them into our communities and treat them better uh, than we would otherwise be inclined to do. So you give that evolutionary background and see it as like, okay, we have this threat response, but we've come to somehow suppress it. And now sort of fast forward to contemporary societies where we have this whole uh, history now with animals, uh, we still find ways, of course, to to treat them poorly. So we've we've uh, we've overcome our initial uh, you know threat response. You might say, I don't know if "overcome" is the right word, but we've we've somehow uh, had enough time to ingrain certain behaviors where we treat animals. Uh, still as if they're sort of threats, we need them need to keep them at arm's length. Uh, and so whenever somebody says, you know, actually, I think we should, uh, you know, improve our, our treatment of animals. So something as simple as, you know, you shouldn't leave your dog outside in the winter, you should bring it inside. Uh, that would be a better treatment of the dog. People still have this sort of response that I think taps into this uh, evolutionary uh, account that I give where it's sort of like, this is a threat to me to, to think that the dog or whatever animal should be treated roughly, you know, along the same lines as I would treat another human being. We, ha we have this same sort of reaction of uh, this threatens the natural way of things, the natural way that animals should be treated. I mean, there's, you know, two, two issues. What, one is 
there are there are clear cases of animals that are threats. You know, the, the tigers or, or you know rats in terms of disease and things like that. Um, but there are also very clear cases of animals that are not. Like think of songbirds and um, you know which which uh, aren't a threat. So how how do, how do we you know what why in the course of evolution. Um, why don't or didn't we differentiate? You know, why were they just all kind of put in this general threat category? Yeah. I mean, so we do different differentiate, um, but we still have a, a very fundamental sort of um, unconscious reaction where our, our immediate response is, oh, I think that's a threat. So there are studies of, you know, showing people very quickly pictures of rabbits uh, in a, a video or a, um, you know, an, an edited photo and people will show a threat response immediately. They may then, you know, correct and suppress that, but they do that because there are enough shared features with other threats. So suppose, um, I don't know if this is accurate, but suppose that we're very, uh, you know, we're very responsive to four-legged mammals, you know, treating them as, uh, all as threats. Well, rabbits are close enough to other four-legged mammals that we would treat as threats, that that's our initial response. Um, but I think that's part of so the terror management response is, okay, we have this strongly ingrained threat response that is, is going to be maladaptive if it uh, is allowed to, you know, lead us to avoid all animals. That would be bad for us. And so we have different cognitive mechanisms that would help us overcome that threat response. Um, and I, I guess the second question was, you know, the, the extension of we here, um, because one of the important kind of counterexamples to this evolutionary account is uh, people pointing to cultures that, that apparently worship animals or consider them in some way equals or, you know, they play an important spiritual role in religious, you know, thinking or religious ceremonies. Um, so what, what is your response to people who say, well, you know, yeah, in some cultures, maybe Western culture, you know, maybe imperialistic cultures, but in these other cultures, there's much more of a, a co-equal live and let live respect attitude towards animals. Um, and so it's not that, you know, we as human beings have evolved, uh, but that particular cultures are, are particularly uh, bad about their treatment towards animals and have their attitudes, but other cultures are not, and that these are not evolutionary sorts of attitudes. I, I worry that I didn't I don't give a, a you know a sufficient account a comprehensive enough account uh, or treatment of that issue in the book, but from my review of you know the literature, other people who have who have looked at cross cultural attitudes to animals, especially in non Western non industrialized uh, nations or groups, is that there's still a similar sort of phenomenon going on. So there are different accounts where uh, studies of indigenous people in you know different parts of the world so southeast asia or amazonian communities or different uh, groups in canada where they have this view where animals are seen as equals with humans or in some cases are seen as even better than humans 
And when they give justifications of how they use animals or how they eat animals, they say things like, well, we're, this is a reciprocal, reciprocal relationship where I have to ask for their permission basically to kill them. And in turn, you know, some of them accept it, some of them don't. And then the ones that accept it, we have a ritual where we thank them. Um, it's called the hunting is sharing uh, thesis where the animals are part are supposed to be part of the relationship. And, and people who have written about this have said, yeah, like they seem to really believe this. They don't, these different groups, they, they aren't just making it up or they're not being hypocrites. They really do seem to believe it. But at the same time, there's all sorts of apparent justifying behaviors going on where, you know, certain animals are the only ones, you know, the, the, the animals they find the tastiest just happen to be the ones that uh, are most interested in engaging in this relationship. Uh, or the ones where, um, so like dogs, I think in some groups, nobody wants to eat a dog. And it turns out the dogs just never want to be part of this reciprocal, reciprocal relationship. And so they still end up eating lots of animals. They also, in some cases, end up wasting a lot of food because they say, ah, the animal uh, didn't want to fully participate. So I still killed it, uh, but uh, I, it wasn't actually sharing in, in the hunt. And so it would be wrong for me to actually kill it or actually to eat it. So killing is fine. Eating is bad. And so different people have said, if you look cross-cultural attitudes toward animals, we still see this view of them as uh, less than us and able to be used for basically whatever we want. So maybe they have better attitudes to animals in some sense, but their treatment of them still roughly looks the same as, you know, we, we, they view them as inferior to humans uh, and can be used for food or whatever other services uh, they want. Right. Right. Um, I mean, there certainly isn't any informed consent on the part of the animal, right? Right. Well, it's interesting that when you read it, that's somehow how it reads, is they say, no, I, I have checked with them and they're good with this. And there's a whole ritual to this that you just don't understand, you know, speaking to the ethnographer, whoever it is. Uh -huh. uh, but yeah, it's, it's hard to square that with the facts of what actually happens. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Okay, so, you know, this idea that they are in some, in various ways, less than us in some way. Um uh, one of the ways that you discuss it, in terms of how we do this classification as less than us um, and our superiority is by using mental states. Um, and you, you have a very nice figure in one of your chapters on where various philosophers stand on uh, dimensions of, you know, are the animals agents? You know, do they have agency in some appropriate sense, uh, do they have, do they feel experience, right? Sensory experience in particular, quite often pain. 
um, and that these are various mental states that animals can be assigned, uh, you know, that we think they have them and therefore they have some sort of moral status or they don't have them and therefore they don't, they have a different moral status. Um, could you kind of put, you know, talk us through that graph where you have various, you know, prominent philosopher, you know, Peter Singer, Martha Nussbaum, um, and others on this issue of, you know, what sorts of, men, you know, in general categories, agency versus experience, where they think animals stand, uh, you know, in, in, you know, on those dimensions, and then how that might affect their views of the moral status of animals. Yeah. So that, that graph has its origins in uh, a guy named Kurt Gray. I think he was at Harvard at the time. He might still be at Harvard. Did this, did this survey to see, you know, of different types of entities, not just animals, but things like robots, God, uh, infants, what sorts of mental states people thought they, they would have. Uh, and there were two dimensions that they found. So these were not specified beforehand. This is just how it, the results turned out was that some things are high along the experience dimension is what they call it. And that includes things like emotions, basically. Uh, so what philosophers would call phenomenological consciousness, that's sort of what people had in mind. Like there's something behind, there's something to those mental states. So things like uh, a fully conscious adult human being um, would be high on the experience dimension. And then on the other, other end were agential states. So things like memory or language or just the ability to make decisions and things that were high there were like, uh, like a robot, no, no emotion to it, but good at making decisions. And so mapping that onto what ethicists believe about the connection between mental states and moral status, there's sort of a consensus now, uh, which many people point to Peter Singer as the one who sort of built, helped build this consensus that the ability to experience mental states had to be uh, uh, sentient, uh, to, to have some sort of emotional or phenomenological uh, flavor to your mental states. That's what's important for moral status. So Singer's example uh, that a lot of people, I would say, accept is, you know, if you can actually feel hard or feel the experience of suffering or of pain, uh, then you shouldn't be made to, to suffer or to feel pain. That's the basic connection. And a lot of ethicists have gotten on board with that. So there, there are some people on that graph that would disagree. So R.G. Fry is one who says, no, if, if, you, if you don't have language, then you don't have moral status. You, you, aren't, uh, you don't meet a minimal condition for being morally considerable. Uh, and some people, I think, also would say Peter Crothers might fall into that camp uh, where it takes more advanced cognitive abilities, not just the basic ability to you know, feel emotions in order to be morally considerable for your mental states to really matter morally. So as that applies to dehumanization, I'll just say this real quick. Uh, a lot of research on dehumanization and this phenomenon where we uh, you know, treat people differently and treat animals differently because we see them as inferior, what often happens is that people will, will take away a lot of those experience-based or emotion-based attributes. Uh, 
So when I say to someone else, you're, you're you know, another human being, I don't think you're acting like a human. A lot of times what will happen is, is that means I'm saying you're not feeling the right emotions. Like you aren't, you aren't fully able to experience these emotions in the way I do. And a similar thing happens with animals. So some people say it shouldn't be called dehumanization. It should be called dementalization because you're, you're removing mental states by dehumanizing animals. And that's potentially problematic for these ethicists um, if they say that, you know, these experience uh, emotion-based mental states are what matter for moral status, dehumanization can mean that people will, will just refuse to, to attribute those emotions to animals. They'll just say, no, I don't, I don't think they have them because they're animals and therefore they don't deserve to have moral status, whatever that means. Okay. Well, yeah, moral status, whatever that means. I mean, there are different moral statuses, right? I mean, even somebody like, I mean, I don't, I'm not, I'm not saying this is Carruthers or something, but you might say you get some type of moral status, you know, if you feel pain, you know, we, we shouldn't just ignore your pain, uh, but you don't get, you know, top drawer moral status, right? So they're different. And then um, uh, uh, there's the idea that, uh, as, as you do mention in the book, that uh, an animal can have a kind of derivative moral status where uh, because it's owner, you know, in the case of a pet, for example, uh, because its owner has a particular status, the animal acquires a certain status. So I, I can't, you know, we, we can't just kill uh, somebody's pet or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, so the, a distinction that I usually find helpful is moral status and moral significance. Uh you can say, yeah, you have moral status and that we will take your, your, your interest into consideration, but it may not actually be very significant and it, it, won't, it won't amount to much. And that's where I think a lot of the debates now are happening in society is we're saying, yeah, we should, we should consider, like we, we treat our pets better um, than we used to because they have moral status, but we still, it still might be fine to... Um, you know, hit them or abuse them in some ways. And there's no, people may not see that as particularly wrong because they're not that morally significant. Um, so, I mean, one of the themes that, that is coming up here in the background, and now I want to bring it to the foreground, it's the latter part of your book is uh, the idea that we seem to have a lot of barriers to moral progress with respect to our uh, behavior towards animals. Um, and I think a lot of these discuss the cases that you've been discussing, there's, there's just a huge amount of resistance, right? And that can come out in a lot of different ways of people simply refusing to believe that, uh, you know, the, the bonobos that you gave tours about, you know, might have any sort of advanced, you know, what we consider advanced abilities, you know, language and so forth. And they're actually offended by it, right? Um, um, and of course, if you're offended by the mere idea that a bonobo might have certain qualities, um, then you're going to be, or you already are, a pretty resistant to changing uh, your behavior uh, because you have those attitudes, right? So, um, so this is, if anything, this is kind of the 
I take it to be the driving force of the of the book in a way is uh, how do we go about changing these attitudes and to, to what extent can they be changed? Um, so maybe you could, could say a bit about why we seem to be so resistant to improving our behavior towards animals. So, yeah, one, I guess one focus of the book is why animals specifically, but there's also a major undercurrent of uh, why are we so bad at changing ourselves morally in general? Yeah, Uh, that was right. Let me just put out there some of the people, um, an unusual response to some of this discussion um, in other contexts that has come up uh, are people who say, you know, we treat, you know, women or, you know, black Americans or, you know, people of color generally, you know, worse. Right. right? And that's the infrahumanization within the human sphere. Um, and it's offensive that you're so concerned about animals. Uh, yeah. Uh, you should, you, you know, we, we mistreat other people. So they should, it's, it's, it's another way of mistreating people to be thinking about animals uh, is, 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 if you see what I yeah. mean. I was, and I was kind of surprised by that response myself, although I, I do see where it's coming from. Right. So anyway, I just wanted to get that out there. Yeah for you to address after yeah. you finish your other. Well, this isn't in the book, but there are studies where people seem to think that there's a resource conflict where if you worry about one group uh, and try to help them, that means there will be fewer resources for some other group, uh, which I don't think is generally true. I think that's what's driving it, though, is this intuition that resources are very limited uh, if we if we help animals where will be the resources for everyone else? Um, which, which is a, it is a classic dehumanization response where a lot of times it's, well, I, I need to create a conflict in my mind in order to justify the way I'm currently treating someone, um, which I think is usually not true, but to, yeah, to, to go more into the moral, the, the psychological obstacles. So for moral behavior in general, I think the problem is, we are a lot of our moral attitudes are based in emotions which are hard to change so things like the basic emotions of like disgust or anger or uh, sadness there's lots of studies suggesting it's hard to change the sorts of things you respond very strongly to um over over a lifetime they may change a little bit but uh it's it's hard to even know what they are what your your emotional reactions are and even once you've identified how exactly you feel about something, uh, without a lot of help, it's hard to change your attitudes. And since animals, well, so that's, that's a, a general point about moral psychology. And I think a lot of the advice people are given is, you know, you just work at it long enough and eventually you'll change. And I just don't think that's borne out by you know, the empirical study of moral psychology, it's not enough to just try really hard. Usually you have to have the right social conditions. You have to have the right resources. You have to have all sorts of social support to make uh, significant changes in your moral psychology. That's, it's just a, it's just a hard thing to do. Uh, and with animals specifically, I feel like there, there are even more obstacles. So you have this dehumanization response 
where in the case of human beings, people might have it to other humans who they don't see as like them, but people do recognize shared humanity. So there's enough evidence, I think, that people are, are willing to consider shared humanity as a reason to treat someone better. That's another human being, so that they deserve you know, better treatment than what I'm currently giving them. With animals, though, the, the idea of improved treatment is threatening to people. So especially if there are strong emotional responses, like I'm afraid of dogs, or I'm disgusted by them, uh, or apes, uh, to go back to my original example, so many people so disgusted by apes or primates in general, you just can't get them to, to think about them as worthy of moral concern. And so some people would say, well, I think that's changing as we're uh, learning more about their cognitive abilities or you know, things that make them seem more human. But there, there are hard limits to that, I think. One, because there are so many animals that just don't think in the same way that we do or they don't behave the same way we do. It's, it's going to be hard to say, oh, look at that thing. It's so much like humans, so we, you know, we should treat it better. But then also there's already so many ingrained uh, behaviors like you know, eat, you know, eating meat that are strongly rooted in cultural traditions as well as some of these dehumanization processes. It's going to be really hard for society as a whole to uh, shift their behaviors and their, their treatment of animals. Okay. Um... So how might we, I mean, what you, you try to provide some sort of, I, I would, I wouldn't say a roadmap that's too specific, but um, some suggestions about how we might go about trying to change um, our attitudes, despite the very significant you know, cultural and evolutionary and self-interested reasons that we have to keep things exactly the way they are. I mean, so for, for people, for people making roadmaps, I guess that's, I, I wanted to address other people who are trying to go, who have similar goals, I guess, of acknowledging that behavior change is hard, but they want to, uh, you know, give it a shot. And so I proposed criteria for ethicists who are making prescriptions for people, you know, telling people morally what they ought to do in order for them to actually engage at a moral psychological level. So if you're, if you're introducing some behavior change that you think is required, uh, my proposed, my proposed criteria is basically that you have to make a roadmap. So the three are impact, uh, transition and achievability. And I won't go into the details, but basically it just means you need to give some account of how people currently think and what you think the end state is, and then how you think we'll get there. Because I think too often, which I guess I didn't, I didn't go into much detail about this, but given our, these dehumanization responses, we should expect significant resistance to you know, proposals to improve our attitudes or behavior toward animals. So you need to dive into the literature and at least give some account of how you think you can overcome these obstacles. And so toward the end of the book, I try to give some uh, like very specific proposals of how you could change people's re you know, disgust reactions to animals. But those are on a very small scale. And really, the, the I think, 
main upshot of what I'm proposing is that there could be lots of you know, plausible ways we could change our moral psychologies, but without diving into the evidence, it's hard to, it's hard to just tell people, this is how you should change without giving them some idea of how that would actually occur. Because it's, it's sort of too easy to tell people, uh, you know, you need to be kinder to animals or something like that. Uh, it needs to be more fine grained. So if you were, if you were going to apply this to the case that you started with at the very beginning with the, uh, the offense response by some of the visitors to the the great ape trust, right? Um, how how would this apply to them? You know, just again, just in a general sense. With apes, it's almost unfair because they are so similar to us, uh, and they're so engaging. So, in particular, these bonobos. Uh, if we had just a little bit more time with these tour groups, where they could have a one-on-one encounter, uh, that would usually do it. Um, in some cases, people would just be more grossed out because, of course, they're not wearing clothes. Uh, if you've ever seen a bonobo, there uh, there are lots of fluids everywhere and their genitalia is right in your face. And so some, some people do get grossed out despite having like a good one-on-one, one-on-one interaction. Um, but in general, I, I think it helped, you know, you can see they have very human facial expressions that would help. And they're very interactive. And in general, that is the case for a lot of animals. They may not be, uh, they, they don't have human facial expressions, but interaction with animals helps because then you can come to understand their, their interests and their desires, the sorts of things that they do in their uh, surroundings. That's one thing I think people go to zoos for is they, they want to make some connection with an animal. And if they do, then they, um, you know, they fall in love with, with zoos and with animals, but that's hard for a lot of the animals that I think people are afraid of or disgusted by. So that's, that's the one thing that I'm still sort of stumped by is how can we have broad enough experiences like this where people could come, you know, overcome their negative reactions to animals. Because zoos, zoos are sort of the only way a lot of people have this. Like you, you can go on a hike and maybe see an animal from afar, but you're not going to have uh, a one-on-one interaction. You can have it with your, your pets or your companions. Uh, but if you're the sort of person who wants an animal in your home, you're already sort of different from a lot of people. So what, one of the things that came up in the book was this idea of situational factors and, and nudging, right? The the concept introduced by, or at least promoted by, I think it was Cass Sunstein, right? Um, uh, would it be better to focus on simply changing the contexts um, rather than struggling to change the emotional, the emotions or the attitudes? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I explored in the book. Uh, I've since, I guess, become a little bit skeptical that uh, that can be done because that also requires a lot of buy-in from policymakers. And uh, in a lot of cases, I think it will require more buy-in from you know, governments than a lot are willing to do. But I think that that's, that's right. So for instance, uh, an example in the book that I think is interesting, I don't even know if it's still going on, but Whole, Whole Foods had a, an animal welfare rating system that was designed to you know, promote or encourage people to buy 
meat that was uh, you know humanely raised, whatever that meant. And they were put on the shelves, and you know the labels were designed in a certain way, where people would be more likely to buy those you know those types of meat than others. And that's the the general idea of a nudge is well you you, you don't have to to choose the welfare welfare friendly meat, but we're going to make it pretty hard for you to not do that. And so similar ideas could be applied in other contexts. The things I've heard is, is that's how uh, uh, shelters are sort of doing things now, where they, they know that the dogs that they're trying to uh, get adopted are going to be seen as bad for various reasons. And so they, they try to encourage people to even come to the shelter in certain ways, uh, where they, 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 they might promote it as the, the ethical choice. And then once you get there, there are ways of you know, promoting certain dogs over others and ways to encourage people like this. This is a good thing that you're doing. And that's. Yeah, I think I think that's in general the way to approach behavior change of you need to give, you know, put people in a condition where their their moral psychologies won't um, convince them to do things they otherwise wouldn't do. So one thing I think is very strong in our moral psychologists is that we're bad at predicting our emotions. So we might think I'm going to be, uh, this is just off the top of my head, but going back to the shelter idea, I'm going to be the sort of person who uh, adopts a dog from a shelter because I think that's morally the right thing to do rather than going to uh, you know, a puppy farm or something like that. But then as soon as I get to the shelter, I see the dogs and I'm terrified. Um, this is this sort of reaction I think is really common where we, we have some idea in our head of what would be the right thing to do, uh, but we just can't do it. Or another common experience I think is people who are vegetarians suddenly in a uh, situation where it's going to be socially painful to not eat meat. And so what happens is you get in that situation and all of a sudden you find yourself eating meat. Those sorts of things are hard to overcome. And so situations have to be created uh, such that it's easier to act on what we actually think is, is right or wrong. Uh, again, you know, on the same theme of, of moral progress towards animals. Um, I mean, one of the reasons that, that, that this book could be written now, as opposed to a couple decades and certainly centuries ago, um, is that it seems like we're in a, uh, a situation kind of globally speaking, where animal welfare, thinking about other animals has become, uh, you know, a thing, really. I mean, so many people have, they go like straight from meat eating. They don't even, you know, vegetarianism is just this, you know, local stop on the way to veganism, right? Um, And so there's a much more heightened consciousness, at least in some, maybe in some social strata, in some societies, of more concern about animals and animal welfare. Um, and uh, you know, I think one of the skeptical questions you raise, or at least it's it's certainly worth raising, is just you know, have we actually improved in terms of what you call expanding the moral circle? I mean, that's that was something I heard repeatedly when I was in. So this book came out of my dissertation, and that was one thing I heard repeatedly was, "Why would you be skeptical of moral change, given that we've 
we've already done it. Like we've we've already changed our attitude so much in the last 20, 30 years. Uh, the thought that we have these negative attitudes to animals just seems crazy. And a lot of times people use the, the, the term, we, we're part of this expanded moral circle where starting with other equal rights movements, you might say, you know, animals are next. So we've been changing our conception of what, uh, you know, who or what matters from landed, uh, you know, white men to eventually it's going to be animals. Um, and maybe right now that's what we're experiencing. And so I, I looked at the literature on this and I, I was thinking, okay, so if, if it, the expanded moral circle is a real thing, we've got to be able to identify what would, what would cause it. And, and one account that I saw that seemed more convincing than a moral psychological change was just the idea that this is a legal movement. So the expanded moral circle is really just, it just means expanded legal rights, but not expanded or changed moral attitudes. And so if we look, if we look at some of the main areas where people will say like, this is where things have changed, like laboratory animals, people say, oh, we, we, we're not using as many laboratory animals as we used to. We're, they're di we're doing different things to reduce the, you know, the suffering caused to laboratory animals. There's actually evidence to, to suggest maybe that's not true because uh, the EU as well as the US doesn't count uh, mice and rats, which is the overwhelming majority of the, the numbers uh, of, of the animals used in biomedical research. We just don't have good numbers then on how many animals we actually use for that. And it's still, it's not, those numbers aren't going down in a way that suggests that we have this sudden, really strong. Uh, positive attitude toward animals. Uh, other areas are like meat consumption in the U.S. Meat consumption is going down the last I, I guess, looked at the evidence. But worldwide, it's going up because eating animals in a lot of places is tied to economic prosperity and improved economic conditions. It's also rooted in certain cultural traditions. So I mean, this isn't just my argument. Lots of people have said the expanding moral circle, if that's even a real thing, might have certain strong limits because it's you know, using animals in certain ways, ways that might seem uh, exploitative or cruel, is going to be tied to human prosperity. And given this sort of dehumanization response where people view animals as less than human, it's going to be hard to convince people that they should put the animal's interest over theirs. Yeah, so you mentioned legal changes. Um, so if, if you've got the law protecting you, does it, does it really matter? I mean, <laughs> right? I mean, right. I mean, that's, so that's sort of where I end up at, but I don't know if I fully endorse it. I'm, I'm, sort, I'm sort of of the opinion that it, I'm not sure it matters. So if, our, if the goal is to improve treatment of animals, I'm not sure you need to say that moral attitudes have really changed. It could be enough just to say we have effective legal protections in place that have some staying power. Um, that's, so the real concern is we put the legal uh, rights in place, but because there's actually still strong negative attitudes toward animals, they won't be effective. So either they won't be enforced or people will find loopholes or there will still be you know, pockets of abuse that are just hard to find. So that's, that's a concern, but at the same time, 
it's easier to change the mind. Well, this is probably more controversial than I'm, I'm suggesting, but it's easier to change the minds of certain policymakers uh, who are pro-animal, whatever that means, than it is to try to get you know a significant chunk of society to start thinking of animals more positively on their own. Uh, so there, and there are lots of people now doing this. I feel like, especially in the last couple of years, there are more and more people say lobbying Congress uh, to change the way like livestock animal are treat, animals are treated. So assuming that people aren't going to suddenly become vegetarian, well, at the you know at the, at the least we can uh, improve the conditions they're reared in. And that might be quicker and more effective ultimately than waiting for people to change their change their attitudes on their own. Right. So what um, you know, what attitudes should we have? I mean, um, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, humans value their their you know autonomy to to do what they want to. Uh, they are, you know, have their own self-interests and we consider it uh, a value that they be able to pursue their self-interest. Um, so, you know, what sorts, what, what's the end goal here? Um, at least in your view, as far as where, where should our attitudes end up? I mean, do, should we end up with, yeah, no, they're, the, they're just, you know, they're equal. And so your human right to X, you know, can be superseded by this animal's right to Y. And, and so, yeah. So on the one hand, I'm, I'm wary of ethicists who I think assume that everyone else is roughly on their side, that animal interests are equal to human interests, whatever that means. And so they, they sort of take on their their prescriptions for moral behavior is basically people should act like 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 I do, um, and they say you know people people should recognize the importance of pain and suffering. Animals should not be you know sentient animals should not be allowed to suffer, uh, which means that most of our for example meat eating practices need to change, uh, most of our captive conditions need to change, etc. I, I want to resist that a little bit just because there are so many people who don't think along those lines and insisting that they should is just, is just not going to be effective. Um, it's, it's not going to tap into their moral psychologies in the right way and not just for, you know, mere rhetorical reasons, but their, their moral beliefs are, are different. Uh, they, it's not that they are cruel or that they are uh, ignoring moral suffering. It's just that they prioritize other things. Uh, and in their in their moral lives, it's not easy to just suddenly change their behavior. They may not even understand, you know, the basis of those sorts of recommendations. On the other hand, so people people do under, understand the you know the role of of harm and suffering. I think there's good enough evidence to suggest that people do make that connection between, uh, you know, suffering is bad for animals, and so we shouldn't be you know make them suffer. And so they need, there needs to be some sort of assistance in place so that people can act on those sorts of beliefs. So right now, I would say it's pretty hard for people to change their eating behaviors just because so much of our, you know, food culture uh, is centered on meat. And so for people who might be, uh, you know, 
pro-animal or pro-animal welfare, there may be no really good ways for them to express that belief. And that's, that's the sort of thing I think we should focus on is what sorts of societal conditions should we put in place, not to force people to, uh, you know, express their pro-animal attitudes, whatever that means, but that they at least have the option. Uh, or at least it's easier to to enact moral change than just uh, besides just telling people like ah just work at it this is something you're you're on your own in, in doing. So well we're we are out of time unfortunately. Uh, so maybe you could say a bit about where what you're working on now. Are you following up this book or have you turned to different topics? I mean, what are you working on now? Yeah, so I've turned to different topics for the moment. Uh, the animal stuff really was, uh, you know, like a decade in progress. Uh, and I, I published a lot of animal and environmental issues. Uh, and now I'm working more in biomedical ethics. I'm working on, on projects, privacy and healthcare. But at the moment, I'm doing a postdoc in a med school where I'm focusing on all the, all the data sharing that goes on now in healthcare, uh, especially with advances in tech, technology. Uh, and basically how we yeah, how, how we can pr protect our health data when we know it's going to be shared all over the place. Okay. Well, um, I appreciate your taking the time to talk with us at New Books and Philosophy, and I wish you best of luck with these um, new research directions. Thank you very much. You've been listening to an interview with T.J. Kasperbauer, postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Bioethics at the Indiana University School of Medicine. We've been talking about his new book, Subhuman, The Moral Psychology of Human Attitudes Towards Animals, which is just out from Oxford University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.